Written on the pages of the great book of nature lies a truth so profound that it has beckoned men and women throughout the ages to seek its wisdom. We will continue this quest and study many stories of humanity as we search for this light. On this journey, we will examine philosophy, religion, and science to uncover the hidden mysteries behind myth and legend using the symbols of universal Freemasonry. Welcome to Legends of the Craft. Welcome back to Legends of the Craft. I'm here with Brother Axel Savari. We have a great episode, which is postmodernism and Freemasonry. This is a subject that we've been discussing probably now for a greater part of a, of a year, and we've decided to, to to do a podcast on it because we believe that it has um, well, it has had a fundamental impact on Freemasonry. Postmodernism is a philosophy which kind of arose out of the 19th century, but really you know, took hold in the middle of the 20th century after World War II. And consequently, if you look at the membership numbers in Freemasonry, you'll see that beginning after World War II is when you start to see a decline all the way to this very day. Now, we can't prove causation or correlation here, but um, it is interesting to note that as the membership has declined, the postmodern ideas have been on a rise. Now, many of you may not know what this word is. You may, maybe you've heard of it, um, but I guarantee as we go through this podcast that you will identify many of your own views. You'll, you'll identify TV shows, essentially all popular culture with postmodernism. It's the underlying philosophy of the world today, whether you're conscious of it or you're unconscious of it. And postmodernism... I'm not going to say it's an evil thing or it's a good thing. It's just it's a reaction to the 19th century. It's a reaction to the Enlightenment. It's a reaction to two world wars. It's the natural evolution, I believe, to the events that have taken place in the past. And we need to learn to analyze this, this philosophy, you know, its origin. And we need to learn how to overcome its deficiencies and to move us forward. Um, so that's kind of what we'll be discussing today. Yeah, postmodernism as a philosophy has certainly become a, a very, what would you say, a timely talking point. Uh, I think a lot of people, especially probably people in our uh, audience, but a lot of people in society in general have heard the word postmodernism either uh, decried by somebody or you know lambasted as the death of all Western civilization or something like that. And it tends to be discussed in a way that isn't really uh, fair to its tenets and doesn't really get to the subtleties of its errors. Uh, I think people are often like, oh, postmodernism is destroying everything. And well, you know, you may have a case in some, in some regard, uh, the subtlety of the argument itself is lost on people. And I think that that needs to be corrected because it, it, it's quite fascinating what it's done to popular culture. Yeah, this is not going to be some sort of right wing, you know, podcast here. We're not Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson, and and we're not here to you know explain to you why Western civilization is in collapse. Postmodernism, like I said earlier, it's it's just it's the natural evolution of mankind, and you kind of have to see it as the equivalence of um, adolescence. You know, you, you get these teenage kids, 
and they naturally rebel against their parents and think that everything's stupid and everything is inferior and they're the smartest person in the world. And I kind of equate postmodernism with that stage in the evolution of a person. It's, it's, that, it's, it's when you start to kind of look at everything a little more critically and you start to wonder why you believed what you did and you start to realize that maybe you've been indoctrinated a little bit and then you start kind of ripping everything apart. And it, it's a natural stage and it has to happen, but there also has to be something that comes afterward. Well, it's interesting that, you know, when, uh, when adolescent teenagers start rebelling against authority and questioning those beliefs, they often resort to the idea uh, first of uh, <clears throat> God is dead, that, that Nietzschean, you know, proclamation that, that God has died and that he was only the opiate of the masses the entire time anyway, so good riddance to him. Um, but it, it, it's funny, I, I think you and I would both agree that that, um, that that idea, that statement of Nietzsche is kind of at the foundation of what would eventually become postmodernism, that that uh, signaled a shift ideologically amongst uh, Western academics that kind of goes in the direction of postmodernism. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Nietzsche is, is, is going to be the beginning of our history of postmodernism here. But to, to, to kind of define postmodernism more, you have to know what modernism is because it's postmodernism, right? So what is modernism? Well, modernism was a movement from about 1900 to about 1930. And modernism was this idea of like, oh, look, we have all this great technology, you know. Um, we've defeated disease. We have sanitation now. We're making life easier. People are surviving now because of of the technological you know, glories that man has discovered. And so this age of modernism was a rebellion against the church, against Christianity in the Western world. It was, it was a, a hope that technology could solve all our problems. Uh, but there was also this, this idea that uh, God was dead, as you brought up, Brother Axel, that uh, man had empowered himself to the point that, you know, we could create utopian societies. We could... We could solve all our problems. We didn't need an external source. Well, the, yeah, exactly. If God had died, then, you know, so be it. Like, we're on our own, and that's just fine because we can do whatever we want, and there's no limit to our progress that we can make on our own. And that's where Nietzsche kind of comes into this equation because his quote, you know, God, God is dead, I think has really been misunderstood by just about everybody because, you know, uh, right-wing Christians kind of use it as a phrase to say that, uh, oh, look at these atheists, they think they've killed God and all that. And what Nietzsche is really saying, and we're kind of, Brother Axel is going to read the quote here in a moment of what he wrote in his, in his writings. Um, what he's basically trying to say is that um, mankind has killed God. The Enlightenment killed God. Rationality killed God. This sort of objective... Uh, point in the universe that everybody could rally behind and explained everything. And he was actually making this statement out of fear. He's like, well, now that we've killed God as a society, as a civilization, uh, what's going to replace God? What are we going to do without God? Uh, will rationality succeed in replacing him? Will, will we find a way of uh, finding a moral system that everybody could follow? What are we going to do without God? And, and he was actually genuinely very concerned for the future of humanity. Well, and he was absolutely justified in his fears. Because if you, I mean, I, th I think that's at the, that he writes that at the end of the 1880s. And then shortly after that, we, you know, the, the 20th century is unleashed. And what we find in the 20th century is two world wars that killed literally hundreds of millions of people, um, including, you know, Stalin, including 
uh, Maoist China. I mean, these horrible regimes that were atheistic regimes that had denounced religion, said God did not exist. And what they do? They literally killed millions and millions of people in an attempt to create utopian societies. Well, I mean, World War One too, was an experiment in doing away with the ancient monarchies of Europe. Monarchies that had stood, you know, for better or for worse, had stood for centuries and centuries as points of of fixation ideologically, philosophically, spiritually for all the people that lived in those in those kingdoms. They that was the order of the day and all of that was wiped away in 4 years and millions of people were slaughtered. It was and and it psychologically traumatized Europe for a century. And it, in my opinion, and I think in Nietzsche's, I, mean, I think that comes from the logical conclusion of the Enlightenment, so to say, the, the absolute extinction of, of God in everyone's life. Because without God, you can't have a king because the king is the king because he's God's representative on earth. So if, if you kill God, then the king has to go down by default. So Brother Axel, why don't you read uh, this quote from The Gay Science, which is uh, Nietzsche's 1882 a work that specified this exact quote that we're talking about. Quote, God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? This is just so fascinating because you can you can see the fear. It's like, what are we going to do? What are we going to have to invent? You know, was this deed even too great for us, he says. And it's so true. And I think even here in the 21st century, you know, a long time after this quote was written, have we found the replacement of God. I mean, I, I see our society as one in distress. I see our society as one that is completely split on what is true, and people literally are trying to find their own identities because there's nothing objective to hold on to anymore. Mm -hmm. Everything is, is confusion. Everything has been reduced so much to the level of the individual and their perspective, and that whatever they think is true, it's become very egocentric, our society, that I think it relates back to God is dead. There's no objective truth. There's no objective morality. There's no objective sort of values and etiquette in society. So what do you do? Well, everybody can do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. But has that made us happier? Have we conquered religion? Well, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a destructive philosophy in the sense of, or at least beginning of a philosophy, because, yeah, I mean, we acknowledge that, you know, with children, you don't do this. You don't give children no rules and access to everything and accept them to come out of, of the other end of their childhood safely. I mean, we acknowledge that that's a dangerous thing to do, that we have boundaries and rules for people for a reason, because there are dangers in the world. Well, there's a danger to going through the world without any reason. And, and when I say reason, I, I don't mean enlightenment rationalism. I mean a reason for being or a purpose to your life. That's to be without that is a very dangerous place to be, frankly. And and, and I think you know Nietzsche was vindicated with the twentieth century. It, it absolutely fell to pieces, and it was really only kind of the the restoration of a moment of peace at, at towards the end of, of the century with the collapse of the Soviet Union that we were even able to take a breath and, and think of a purpose for the next century. 
the collapse of the Soviet Union, I think I see it as the eye of the hurricane. You know, mm-hmm. it's the eye of the storm. Like there was a bit of peace and tranquility right afterward, but we mm-hmm. we're, we went right back into it uh, with September the 11th and everything that's come afterward. So postmodernism again is a react. You know, it's the reaction to to modernism. So this idea that technology would triumph that. We could create utopia. Well, it failed. And so modernism didn't last more than three, four decades. And then postmodernism came in and, and essentially became really strong in the 1950s and 60s, especially the 60s and, and what we call the, the uh, counterculture, you know, the, mm-hmm. the sexual revolution, you know, all those things the that came in. The, yeah. the hippies, yes. I mean, all of that is postmodernism. That's the beginning of postmodernism. And we are still feeling its effects here. So. What happened was in the despair of modernism's failure, in the despair of having uh, technology and rationalism become the new god, and it didn't, it failed, um, postmodernism says, look, we don't live in an objective universe. We don't, we, you can't find uh, objective truth. There is no god. We can't even reinvent god through technology. We can't even reinvent god through uh, great government. No, we, we can't properly impose order because order itself is a flawed concept. There is no order. There is no order to be discovered. So there's no point in trying to create one or hold anybody to it. Yeah, there's nothing objective. The only thing that exists is the individual, and the individual is part of a group. And we'll kind of get into the group talk a little bit later. But essentially, as individuals, whatever we think is true. And this was kind of the age where you find cultural relativism. Uh, relativism and philosophical relativism where really one person's idea is no better than another. One person's religion, one one person's way of doing things is no better. Every, everything is the same. Everything. And, and, and this leaks into the New Age movement, and in my opinion, and this is what I kind of want to get into, it leaked into Freemasonry, where, you know, the symbols of the craft, it's whatever you want them to be. They actually have no meaning. There is nothing on the other side of the symbol. Whatever they, however they talk to you, that's all that matters. And I actually think that was poison to Freemasonry. Well, I mean, absolutely, because I think that what, like, what has to happen in, in order for the, let's say, the fulfillment of the postmodern idea, that idea is that it, it very quickly goes to kind of the, the essential question of like whether or not there is morality because like you said there's cultural relativism and philosophical relativism but these those are really just two outgrowths of moral relativism and, and because if there is no God morality comes from God or at least did at the beginning of postmodernism if we have eradicated that if we've eradicated its representatives on earth in terms of the monarchies and the classical systems of political authority once those are swept away, so both the source of morality and its enforcers, and the attempts at instituting reason-based, rationality-based moralities in the early 20th century also failed, then the response of the postmodernists was, well, let's just give up on morality. Clearly, that, clearly that's just a can of worms that shouldn't be opened because it just results in all of these terrible things. Um, so we should steer away from that and enter a world without morality because clearly not only has it not done us any good, it's done us harm. And philosophically what you're saying, Brother Axel, the postmodernism is described as a couple of things. But first of all, um, as, as societal constructs. So they're like morality is not an objective thing. It doesn't, God doesn't exist. It didn't come from God. It doesn't come from nature. The idea of morality was constructed – 
at some point by people in society and ancient civilizations as a means of controlling people, of, of imposing hierarchies and power structures over people. And so the church, they usually use the church as an example, they constructed all the stuff that we've been taught and indoctrinated with as a means of control. So not only is morality an invention, but it is our sacred duty to realize that and take the reins of that power and create our own morality for ourselves. That nobody should be able to impose anything upon us. It is a, I mean, it makes sense because like, you know, Nietzsche's quote that we read earlier kind of, it puts in perspective his philosophy of the Superman, right? That, that in order to be worthy of this deed of killing God, we have to become as God so that we can basically comfort ourselves um, in, in the fact that we've done this, this thing. And, and postmodernism is actually like kind of leads you into a, into a similar um, kind of libertarian almost philosophy of individual realization where like you become the creator of the world because you have to be. Because you, 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 you can't attach yourself to any external creator because, like you said, that's viewed as an ancient attempt to brainwash you. So you then have to create your own universe and become your own god. They, they, they actually fall in line with Nietzsche's philosophies of the They Superman. do, but, but he didn't believe. Uh, he wouldn't have been a postmodernist. No. Nietzsche's, it, Nietzsche's well, Superman, in my opinion. Nietzsche's Superman, as far as I understand it, were, were to be people that had to realize that they had to take on such such astronomical duties to the rest of humanity that they would like they end up living almost completely altruistic lives in the service of other people because they are the few strong people that that uh that basically realize they have to take care of everybody else yeah nietzsche i don't think he came up with this idea uh, on his own i mean the the supermen that he talks about in his writings in the late 19th century are essentially like the the masters of wisdom of theosophy mm-hmm. Um, they're like the prophets of, of the Old and New Testament. I mean, it's this idea of certain individuals that have been endowed with such qualities that they can lead other men um, on the paths of virtue and understanding. So I think he just sort of rewrote it in a way that... Was palatable to a, a rationalist yeah. German audience in the 19th yeah, century. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, it's just something recant here. So morality comes... You know, is, is a big part of postmodernism. And that's why today, gender and sexual orientation are no longer uh, binary choices, right? I mean, you know, we've heard of you know, being gender fluid and non-binary, um, people using more than the he, she pronouns, for example. And um, I'm, I'm certainly not putting any judgment one way or the other on the subject, only that, you know, these type of discussions were not normal 100 years ago. In, in society, you know, especially if you go back 150 years uh, ago to like Victorian England, like none of this would be on on the uh, on the table for discussion. But it is today, and I think a lot of that's thanks to postmodernism. That you know, a lot of very rigid forms have been broken down, allowing people to express themselves. Um, but also, you know, everything has been put in the hands of the individual in in terms of their own self determination. So I think there's a, a very central postmodern concept that kind of that explains what you're saying here, and that's the idea that 
in postmodernism that they've identified what they call grand narratives. These basically these society-wide stories that we tell ourselves in order to orient ourselves in reality. And and I would think that uh, you know gender traditional gender roles, for example, are an example of a grand narrative. It's this uh, story that men and women are different, they have different talents, different capacities, and they need to perform different roles in society. And then there are, there are various sub-narratives within that, various mythologies that explain you know, what it means to be a good man in a society, what it means to be a good woman in a society. And, and these myths and narratives kind of come together to form a grand narrative of gender roles. And I think a lot of people can agree with that, but the, 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 the grand narratives are also things like the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, like historical periods are considered grand narratives and they are to be rejected by the postmodernists because all grand narratives have been fabricated by somebody, are not true, and they're only there to put in your head uh, ideas that will control you. So other grand narratives are like, well, like Nazi Germany's, you know, the superiority of, of the Aryan race, like that's a grand narrative. Marx's um, you know, fight of the proletariat against the bourgeoisie is a grand narrative. Jesus Christ is a grand narrative. These are all, they're like grand stories. You know? And anytime you hear a grand story, you know, Santa Claus is a grand narrative. These, these are all fabrications to the postmodernists, and they have been written by individuals for the purpose of control. So to give the postmodernists some credit at this point, um, so mo- most, of the, most of the early postmodern philosophers were either French or German uh, intellectuals who would have been born just before or during World War I and lived through World War II. So they had seen what they had perceived as basically the violent collapse of grand narratives because, I mean, we're all very familiar with the Nazi grand narrative during World War II of the, you know, the supposed supremacy of the Aryan race and that they were going to conquer the world. But I think less is talked about that those same ideas were present in World War I, the idea that, you know, the, the German Empire was going to sweep through Europe. Nationalism. All this kind of, all of the nationalist myths that, that fueled all sides of both of those wars were very much at the forefront of the actual like living memory of the people that came up with the, these ideas and they had they had seen not only their societies fall apart their friends and their parents die like a, an unimaginable slaughter had taken place in their homeland and so and they basically associated that with the rise of these nationalistic stories of these these grand narratives of progress and the you know the the idea that if only we get rid of all the people that are in our way this great and glorious future is waiting us and now they're living on the other side of that and that hasn't emerged so they are naturally pessimistic towards those ideas and i think you know in, in our modern age, it's easy to look at that and be like, well, why would you destroy all these things? Well, we're not living through the immediate aftermath of what those grand narratives can do. Well, and it's not limited to politics and to religion. Like, they even view science as a grand narrative. And they're, they're very suspicious of, of what science dictates. Now... That being said, when you look at today, you know the the, the typical postmodernist today are, won't necessarily uh, reject all grand narratives. Like that, I don't think that's even possible. Like we all need some grand narratives, right, to to operate our life on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I even think the postmodernists usually betray themselves and pick up some grand narratives. So you know, like for example, uh, social justice today. Many postmodernists uh, um, 
are are postmodernists, or in all truth, postmodernism sort of influenced and created the social justice movement. But that movement in itself is a grand narrative, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a belief freeing of, the oppressed from yeah, the oppressors. Oppressed. Yeah, yeah, you know, equality, equity, those type of things. These are grand narratives, you know. Um, the pure postmodernists, and I don't know how many purists there are out there. I mean, would would have have to have rejected, but that's not what that's not the outcome of all these events. But grand narratives, in general, are supposed to be um, destroyed, and what you are doing is creating your own narrative. So you know, each person is the author of their own life, and that's the only thing that you should be doing is creating your own life. And that goes back to the idea of choosing your gender, regardless of how you were biologically born, because you should dictate what you are, not society. Be, well, because and and how often has everybody who's listening to this podcast heard the words, you know, well, that's my truth, or speak your truth, or I'm going to speak my truth. The, there's this idea that you know individual subjectivity has been elevated to co-equal with objectivity or even surpassing no, yeah, it's not even equal yeah, it's, well, yeah, exactly. objectivity doesn't even exist yes so so all that we're left with is my truth and your truth and and, and the intersection of those truths right i think another point to make about narratives too is that we have to as individuals not only author our own lives but it leads to the idea of deconstruction. This is the main tool, the main, the main weapon in the arsenal of the postmodernists. Is how do we get rid of grand narratives? How do we get rid of these moral ideas of the church? How do we get rid of all this rationalism? How do we, how do we deconstruct uh, this idea that because you're born um, a certain way, you know, with certain biological uh, features that you're automatically a boy or a girl like they're like no this is these are all grand narratives of science religion and politics and we got to deconstruct them and deconstruction is a very specific idea i mean by hearing the word you kind of can infer what it means um, but there's a very specific philosophical sort of imperative that comes with it well and uh, we've mentioned it a few times but i think it bears repeating that like one of the ideas of postmodernism is is actually that it, at some point in the past construction of a, constructionism took place that that you know group generally groups of powerful people that wanted to uh, assert dominance or control over other groups of people constructed grand narratives in order to justify their positions of power over everybody else and to again to be fair to the postmodernists that has some degree of truth to it that certainly has happened in human history it's absolutely happened that absolutely has happened in in from place to place but the idea in postmodernism is that okay so we've got these ancient periods of constructionism what we need now is a period of deconstructionism where we go through these grand narratives and and basically identify all of their constructed pieces that were used to oppress or wield power over somebody and take those apart, show them to be unjustified or absurd or in need of redress. And, in, and it leads into, like you were saying, how the, the movement of social justice came out of postmodernism. Well, the natural response to that is that, okay, we've identified all these grievances. Now we have to uh, propose and advocate for policy that redresses them in some way socially. We have to make our deconstructions uh, an actual reality. Deconstruction, the idea uh, was developed by Jacques Derrida, a French philosopher, um, in the middle of the 20th century. And 
the idea of deconstruction is that you have to identify anything with what they call, quote, unquote, a binary opposition, right? So the idea of a binary opposition is as simple as boy and girl, black and white people, uh, tall people, short people, uh, happy people, unhappy people. Anytime that, that you're in a conversation and someone's trying to tell you that there are two different sides to something, the, the deconstructionist philosophy say, okay, right there, there's, there's a grand narrative. They're trying to tell you that there are two sides. And, and they say anytime that two sides are presented, a binary uh, choice, uh, one will always have to be better than the other. So, you know, men are better than women. Um, his, you know, historically, they're saying, you know, with the power of the patriarchy, uh, white people have been over black people. Uh, tall people have an advantage over shorter people. Um, you know, skinnier people are prettier than fat people, and et cetera, et cetera. So all the examples I just stated uh, are what the postmodernists say. Identify them, hear them. And when you hear them in a conversation or you read them in a book or you, you see it in the news, that is what you need to deconstruct. And so what you do is you need to eliminate this opposition. So that's why in, in terms of gender politics today, they're like, no, there's no such thing as male or female. You can be whatever you want. You can pick a third or fourth or fifth option. There isn't a binary choice. You must destroy all binaries, right? And this was the, the first step of deconstruction. Identify binaries and remove them. Mm-hmm. No, it's, I was just thinking while you were talking there, I mean, this should be of particular interest to Freemasons, right? I mean, Freemasonry is, in some sense, a science of duality. That's one of the... I would say major themes of the Masonic mythology is this idea of duality in the universe and and how to understand its interplay and our relationship to it. And in masonry, it's not by making everything the same. And another thought I I had while you're saying, so I've, I've wondered for a long time, and perhaps we'll get into this later as well, there's this trend in popular culture and media towards um, showing everything as bad, right? That that by by taking old stories and basically making every side of the old story equally terrible that you've somehow destroyed this binary the, the you know good guys and bad guys is another binary opposition we find that most often in media and art um, particularly storytelling and that's where a lot of I would say a lot of the postmodern influence on society today is is in storytelling and there seems to be this idea that you know to, to tell a true a true story a good story, you actually have to show how everybody in it is equally bad and that they're all kind of these conniving, power-hungry people that are just manipulating one another and trying to get power because that's really all that human beings do. There, there's very, it's, you see a lot less media and stories these days of people that are good and virtuous and don't have this kind of like flawed, dark, gritty side that makes them, you know, quote unquote, real. I mean, I think a great example of this is the Game of Thrones series, right? Anybody that's that's listening to this have heard it, you'll know what we're talking about immediately. Like, there are no good guys, right? Everybody's done something bad. Nobody's perfect. And there are really no heroes. And even the people that we start to consider heroes, they end up doing something that we don't like, right? So Game of Thrones is very much a postmodern story where, you know, all the um, archetypes of the Middle Ages you know, the hero and the princess and the prince and, 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 and the good king, they're all, you know, 
they're all reversed, right? You know, Ned Stark, you think he's the noble, you know, Lord of the North in, in, in season one. And uh, you don't think there's any way that his, his head's going to be cut off, right? But mm-hmm. he just gets cut off and that's it. And everything just gets worse and worse and worse. So there's no vindication for his character. And, you know, bringing it to, to modern times, it's, you know, the 1950s, right? The 1950s by some was considered this, like, this, this great age, right? But most films today... Uh, you know, Mad Men, those type of things. They 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 want to show you all the negative things that came out of the 1950s. Uh, not that it's not true, but it's a it's it's they're doing it on purpose to deconstruct our concept of the 1950s. We're deconstructing the idea of the princess and the prince and the king and the hero and all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that is essential to the idea of you know what what they might call balancing out these binaries is is. Again, because the binaries aren't just binaries to the postmodernists. They, they, like you said, they represent an inherent power imbalance, right? Because to the postmodernists, everything in society is just power and the distribution of power. And, and the work of postmodernism is essentially to show that these, po- these power imbalances exist and we should undo them for the sake of undoing them because any power imbalance is an injustice and an oppression. I don't disagree with deconstruction. I think it's a great tool. I mean, I think we have to go through life and identify these binaries that we have in our life, these these assumed, you know, good and bad, you know, uh, up and down um, binaries, and we should deconstruct them. I think it becomes dangerous when we take it to a societal perspective because, you know, society needs structures. It needs hierarchies. Um, Freemasonry, for example— you know, it's, it's very hierarchical. It has power structures. There are binaries, and they're necessary for the instructions of the initiate, right? If we were to remove all of that, masonry would cease to be. So um, I think the assumption that all pi- power hierarchies and that, you know, all power distribution is bad is as equally as silly as too much power in the hands of a few, you know, bad people, you know, you know, these, these evil oligarchies, you know, so to say, but, you know, we need hierarchy. I mean, you need people in charge. You need people that are skilled and proficient to be in charge of those that are learning still to do so. Right. So it's, it's a great internal tool. It's a great for spiritual development, mm -hmm. this deconstruction, but is it great to just deconstruct every element of society until there's nothing left? Well, and, the point of deconstruction, at least, you know, in my opinion, is the act of destruction is useful insofar as it clears ground for something to be built. You know, if, if I look, you know, both of us have worked in construction at one point or another in our lives. And like, if we just went around demolishing every structure, well, that's not going to leave us with a yeah. functioning society. I mean, nobody has anywhere to live, right? The idea of demolition is that you're clearing away the old to build up the new. And the building up, and, and this is where, you know, to, to go back to your hypothetical pure postmodernist that I'm not sure actually exists, the pure postmodernist is actually a destructionist, not a deconstructionist, because eventually like, there there can be no reconstruction because reconstruction in their eyes requires some kind of a grand narrative you have to tell like like how would you build something on a on an eternal truth in a world where you don't believe in eternal truths well i think i think individually on an individual basis you can you can use deconstruction and deconstruct yourself Uh, on a societal sort of point of view you can't because uh, that leads to the second point of deconstruction which is once you've identified the binaries um 
Jacques Derrida says, well, well, here's the second problem and, and solution, which is once you've destroyed one set of binaries, there will always be an inversion of binaries. And what he means is like, okay, so you have the French Revolution and the poor people, they beheaded the king and queen and they took over. Well, now all they did was some of them became the new aristocrats, right? Yeah. And there is a new poor and a new rich. And so then you have this idea that another revolution will occur at some point when everybody's identified, oh, those are the rich people. They're bad. We need to reduce them down to us or we need to go up to their level. But in either case, we, we don't want this binary of rich and poor, right? Well, every time you cut the head off you know, the, the rich or the powerful or whatever oppressor you're trying to get to – you're just going to replace it with a new system. And, and I, I think Jacques Derrida is actually quite brilliant in, in, in recognizing this, but I think he's absolutely true. Like these power structures will naturally reoccur even if you've eliminated them. So he calls for essentially like this idea of permanent revolution. And I think he took this from, from Karl Marx's you know, Communist Manifesto. But the idea is like, okay, we identified binaries, we get rid of them. But the only way to prevent new ones to arise is to have permanent deconstruction. Mm-hmm. It's just to keep this, you know, deconstructing constantly. We have to constantly be alert and be vigilant in in, in finding these new binaries that have uh, that have arisen. So this goes to your point here, brother Axel. That like, how do you construct a society? How do you construct anything if you're permanently destroying? Well, and and that too is is kind of you know. One thing I would say about using deconstruction on yourself too, I mean, like you said, and growing up as a staunch conspiracy theorist, uh, you know, I've I've been a practitioner of deconstruction for a long time. But there comes a point where, like, you know, you're you're kind of you know striking blind in the void in in a sense. And this, like, I think even within oneself, a permanent state of deconstruction is not ideal. No, a, a, a per, really a permanent state of anything in a human being is yeah. probably not ideal. We are meant to change and to adapt and to grow and evolve. And that means not doing the same thing forever. Um, so I think that anything carried out to its extreme is going to be detrimental, but especially, you know, if, if we, uh, what's a good example. So, yeah, I mean, how many, how many people do you know that have, you know, continually read self-help books, but don't seem to get any better? Too many. <laughs> that's in, in a sense, that's kind of like positive deconstruction. You know, I, I know people that are constantly trying to analyze and understand their personality, but their personality doesn't actually change because they're constantly trying to understand it. And, and they'll move from one test to another test to really, you know, trying to hone in on these details and figure out what they, you know, what they're made of. But there's no like there's no next step towards what they can do about it. And I think that that is the the kind of dangerous allure of deconstruction because everything can be deconstructed. Nothing nothing's safe from deconstruction. Like if you and and I I, I don't want to be too strong on the postmodernist here. When I say nothing's safe from deconstruction, is I mean that it is a very powerful tool that can always be applied. Like if there is a structure, it can be deconstructed because it's made of something like you've you've put some things together to to make a point therefore it can be taken down and that's the problem with deconstruction is it's kind of like an invincible weapon it can destroy anything well yeah i mean it's, i mean listen to the to, to media today i mean movies or social media like everyone's just criticizing everyone else and deconstructing the hell out of our civilization oh the founding fathers were bad Oh, you know, our government structures are, 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 you know, elements of white supremacy, everything systemic racism. 
not that these aren't true to some degree, but they also aren't the entirety of all these structures. Mm -hmm. And to just try to deconstruct our entire civilization, what do you replace it with? Because whatever you replace it with will also have to be deconstructed. So you're basically, you know, you're clearing the foundations for the building of the Holy Temple, but you're never allowed to build the Holy Temple. Because it's not holy. Because it's not holy. And it's like, well, you have to build it. And if it's not holy, it will be destroyed. But you still have to have a period of construction. And that kind of goes back to what I said at the beginning of the podcast, that this is like, you know, this is good for when you're a teenager. This is what teenagers do, right? Mm -hmm. Everything is lame. Everything sucks. Their parents are stupid, et cetera, et cetera. Society's lying to them, yeah. and the man just wants to keep them Exactly. Down. Yeah. And 9-11 is an inside chop, right? And, and so, <laughs> you know, eventually you kind of grow up, and you're like, okay, my parents actually weren't stupid, and not everything's lame, and some of the stuff was actually pretty neat, and maybe I was a little ignorant. I didn't know what I was talking about. And, you know, you do – you don't necessarily – you're not what you were raised with, but you take some of it, mm-hmm. and, and you replace it with some new ideas. And so I think it's a necessary stage, but you got to grow up at some point. So I think postmodernism is like, okay, we had this classical world for thousands of years. And postmodernism is us sort of getting, you know, from here to there. It's that that teenage phase. And we need to go through it. But if we live in if we live in postmodernism for the next thousand years, we're basically just being teenagers. We're just for the human next teenagers. Years. Yeah. yeah. And that's and not and no. we know from example that that's not a stage of human development that one wants to be stuck in. Nah, you gotta you wanna get you wanna go through that as quickly as possible. You gotta do it. But do it as quickly as possible. And I think this goes back to Freemasonry in that the requirement for the belief in a supreme power. Why do we believe in this, this objective authority? Well, because it, it roots us in something. It, it establishes a foundation of truth. It says that these symbols do mean something in particular and that we just need to discover them. But they're not whatever we want them to be. Mm-hmm. They're not whatever we need them to be. They are something that are true and that we just need to penetrate their mystery to get to the truth. And, and, and so in this idea of classical theism, this idea that there is a supreme power, it gives us something to hold on to. And I think that everybody needs something to hold on to. You know, whether God exists or not is not even the question at hand. It's the idea that we need to have a, we need to have the highest authority, something that grounds everything else in some sort of objective reality that allows us to create a civilization where we can have a common basis, a social contract. Well, otherwise, I mean, without that, everything's absurd. And, and I think that's why you see absurdism and postmodernism developing right alongside each other uh, is because like w- when you do take away the, that you know axiom of truth that you described— Everything does become absurd. Like so, if I look at and, and Masons listening to this will understand what I'm saying. When you look at the rituals of Freemasonry and what we do in a lodge, without the reality of that professed belief in the supreme power and all of the things that come off of that axiom, what we do is absurd. If you're if you are this you know kind of secularized postmodernist that doesn't believe in any of that and that thinks that we've brainwashed ourselves into believing in grand narratives, well then yeah you know, dressing up and going into lodge and doing what we do does make no sense and is a comical, absurd thing to do in, in you know, in a foolish attempt to avert thinking about our own death or something well, like I, that. I, you just made me think of a great postmodern reference in popular cultures, Monty Python. You know, the Monty Python and the Holy Grail, the life of Brian. These are deconstructions of narratives that they mock, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they mock everything. 
um, in their in their in their movies and shows, and they even mock Freemasons. I mean, there's a bunch of skits that yeah, Monty Python yeah, yeah. does where they they they're mocking Freemasons with their funny handshakes and their aprons and all that. Um, anybody that's seen them, they know exactly what I'm talking about. And they're 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 making it absurd. Mm-hmm. They're deconstructing it because that's what Monty Python does. That's why just you know everything is a deconstruction these days. I mean, there's very little media that is constructive. It's all just it's i don't want to be vulgar it's just it's it's just it's just it's just crapping on everything mm-hmm. yeah no and i i think that's and you know when we get to the to the next idea that you and i wanted to talk about i think you see why that that door has opened up is because of this postmodern idea of the death of the author um which is basically the idea that once an author of any creative work whether it's a book a piece of music uh, a painting or a film or whatever the author of that work, as soon as that creation is finished, the author is no longer relevant to explaining the work. It's all about the interpretation of those that view the piece of art. So for so if somebody writes a book, it's what the reader thinks about the book that's important, not the author. And one of the one of the greatest examples of this in the modern age is uh, Lord of the Rings and really anything written by Tolkien. Because Tolkien wrote a bunch of letters after he wrote The Lord of the Rings to all of the fans of the book explaining what he meant by everything and, and why certain characters were a certain way or what certain ideas were, you know, or what certain characters represented what ideas to him. And a lot of that has been dismissed because, well, it's like, well, what he thinks is irrelevant because, you know, he was a Catholic fundamentalist that was just, you know, trying to push his religious worldview on everybody. So what he thinks about his own writing is irrelevant now. It's all about what we have interpreted since. Uh, another example of that is um, Harry Potter. So uh, J.K. Rowling's, for example, you know, there's some controversies of things she said about uh, transgender people and, and uh, supposed homosexual characters that it was never blatantly said in the books, but she said afterward are. And um, especially after some of the um, supposed, you know, uh, transgender comments that, that were supposedly not in favor of transgenderism, a lot of fans were like, well, it doesn't matter what she thinks. You know, these are my stories now. And and they killed off the author and they have assumed control of the story, so to say, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the death of the author is, it was kind of introduced as an idea uh, in, in 1967 by Roland Barthes, another postmodernist. And Roland Barthes basically, you know, wrote this, this ethic, essay, which was called The Death of the Author. And he kind of outlines all these ideas. Um, and people really ran with it at that point. And that's why you see in media today um, a lot of, you know, those childhood cherished franchises like, you know, Star Wars and Star Trek being, you know, they're being reintroduced, but completely in a different way that a lot of the fans don't like. Why? Well, because it doesn't the author. because it doesn't matter what the what George the Lucas, who cares what George Lucas has mm-hmm. say uh, Gene Roddenberry for Star Trek. It doesn't matter. We're going to create the way we see Star Trek and the way we see Star Wars. And you know what? In fact, we're going to deconstruct. We're going to mm-hmm. de- deconstruct Luke Skywalker. We're going to deconstruct uh, Starfleet and the Federation. We're going to show that they're not as they're not really heroes, you know? And that's, you know, the the movie The Last Jedi. I mean, they show Luke to be sort of weak and pathetic. Because they were deconstructing the patriarchy. They're deconstructing the idea of the hero. And so this idea of the death of the ulcer is is just, it's, I think it's actually a little insidious, to be honest with you. Because um, 
Not that the author has complete control over how I view the story, but I think it's important to try to determine the intent of the author, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and, and in Freemasonry, isn't that what we're trying to do? We're trying to figure out where Masonry came from, who wrote it, for what purpose. You know, that's the purpose of the mysteries, you know, to penetrate the mystery. But if we don't care who authored the mysteries, then how can we get to the goal of the mysteries if I, there is no mystery? I, th- I think understanding the intent of the author is one of the most crucial things you can do uh, with any piece of media that you enjoy or find to be profound or meaningful. I mean, if if you, you know, look at look at Tolkien as an example, only because I, I brought him up earlier, but he, he has this entire worldview behind his um, his stories because he was in the trenches of World War One. He saw these horrors that were unleashed on, on Europe after the death of God and, and the abandonment of traditional mythologies. And his intent was to create a new mythology, a synthesis of all these old legends that could knit people back together again so that such an unimaginably destructive event wouldn't happen again. That was his intent. And when you understand that about Tolkien and what Lord of the Rings is meant to represent, then it doesn't, it, like, it takes on a more serious kind of character to the stories uh, and and you can understand why everything was the way it was and and I think you know if you find something to be valuable I don't understand why you wouldn't do that like why why you wouldn't want to understand where that thing that you tra- cherish so much came from well real quick because I, I almost this is really humorous you you had read an article and I'm trying to remember the specifics maybe you can remind me um some postmodern author had written about Lord of the Rings, how like the the orcs uh, were, were the oppressed <laughs> the, and, and well, the yeah, elves so, were evil. So this mean, is yeah. Recently, I read I read an article. I wish I could give credit to the author, but <laughs> the author's dead, so I don't remember him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it was it was an article that was uh, basically saying that Tolkien's uh, ideas in Lord of the Rings were outdated and damaging to a modern progressive society because they entrench all of these kind of archaic patriarchal. Uh, traditional values and that the orcs are naturally uh, representative of the oppressed victims of colonialism and that Sauron is actually the face of modern progressive science which you know funnily enough is <laughs> it's actually true like Sauron is the face of you know uh, of um, cutthroat industrial scientism that Tolkien thought was destroying traditional ways of life. So the author, I, whether meaning to or not, actually did get that completely correct. But I don't think that the uh, I don't think the orcs are meant to represent the oppressed people of the world. The death of the author um, goes back to this idea of God again, because they, they they'll use the term the author God. That, you know, uh, prior to postmodernism, that the author was always viewed as the god of the text that had been written. So what do you do with God? you got to kill God because, you know, God God and man is another binary opposition. You know, you have God is better than us and man is subservient to God and therefore we must destroy the idea of God, right? So this goes back into deconstruction. This goes back to Nietzsche's question or Nietzsche's question of you know, God, once you remove that objective source, which the author has always been considered the objective source of the text that's written, but you destroy the author, you destroy God, you destroy objectivity, and now you can do whatever you want with the text. 
All right, Brother Matthias, tell me what you think of this, because what you just said there gave me an idea that I, I find, I, th I think I understand now why the death of the author is so insidious, is because it destroys the mysteries. Because if you kill the author, so what we were just talking about, so you, you've got the, the author of a piece of work, right? And there's the exoteric work, which is the story itself. But the author's intent and the author's understanding of the story is the secret interpretation of that story. It's the meaning behind the story. It gives context. It gives depth. It gives understanding to the purpose of the story. So if you're killing the author, you're also destroying any chance of understanding the mysteries behind any given story. Because if we look at the, the stories in Freemasonry are not meant to just be read as bedtime stories. We're meant to penetrate beyond them to the truth, like you said. But if there is no author behind them, there's no there's nobody we can consult as to the true meaning of these stories. There is no reason to look beyond the story because the author is dead. There is no real secret. There's no real truth well, to be yeah. found. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's why modern life is about amusement. So everything is just a point of ridicule. You ridicule everything. You deconstruct it. You just make fun of it. Because that's essentially how they how they deconstruct today. It's like they just. They create a million memes and destroy the idea until it's just so ridiculous everyone's laughing at the idea. The problem is what is left over after you've laughed at everything? Oh, nothing. You end up just laughing in an empty world. Yeah. Right? Everything's a joke. Everything's absurd, like we were talking about earlier. And that's what happens when you kill the author. Now, granted, I think there's some validity in this. Like, if, if I... If I uh, read Lord of the Rings or watch Lord of the Rings, and I, you know, it answers a few questions of a dilemma that I'm going, that's going on in my personal life at the moment of watching that film, and I'm like, oh man, it was really inspirational because, you know, it 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 helped me overcome uh, overcome. Let me think of something like alcoholism, whatever. Um, was that the intent of the author? No, it wasn't. But so we can take subjective truths that impact our personal life from text, but I don't think that should negate or take away. From the intent of the author. I think both can coexist without mutually destroying one another. So I, I think too, there's another aspect of this idea that, uh, that I'm thinking about now is that like, so what comes along with the, with the constant mocking of, um, of narrative and, and the care, specifically the characters in those narratives is that, you know, in olden days, the characters of a story are heroic figures. And heroic figures exist to give us models of behavior. These are why we have heroic figures in religion. They're supposed to show us the, the, the perfect way of human life, the, like how we're supposed to behave in the face of a chaotic reality that nobody really understands. We're, we're given these, uh, these you know, supermen, to, to use Nietzsche's term, that we're supposed to emulate. But another thing that goes along with this kind of death of the author and the absurdism is like there's this idea now in culture that to emulate anybody is inherently a bad thing. Like a priori, to emulate somebody, to copy somebody else's mode of being means that you're being controlled or oppressed. You're or following a grand narrative. You're follow well, it, following in general is now it's a bad thing like if like if somebody is uh you know acting like somebody else because or acting like a, a character from a tv show or a film they are kind of seen as like a, having a weaker or lesser mind because they're they're not able to do it for themselves which is the you know the holy grail of the postmodernist is that you're supposed to reinvent yourself on your own but not many people and i would say not any people are really capable of doing that and we so we need role models but role models 
are now just another trick of oppression and and you know systems of of um, systems of oppression and injustice to control us. And I think that that is also a very damaging idea for people, especially when we look at it from a Masonic context, because in Masonry, we have heroes and those heroes are there to instruct us in the proper mode of, of finding the truth of the mysteries. No, absolutely. I think that in the end, um, the problem here is that these tools, which were meant for internal investigation, you know, for self-effacing thought and internal discovery it's you know deconstruction is vitriol you know vitriol is you know is acid essentially mm-hmm. and but and when applied to yourself you can you can burn away all the excess you know uh, dogmas and doctrines that really aren't a part of you but that have been uh, imposed and you've been brainwashed with so vitriol is deconstruction right mm-hmm. and, and it's a critical element of the mysteries but once the problem is, if I apply it to myself, it's one way. But if I apply it to others, then I'm just destroying other people. Yeah. So deconstruction has to be something that is for an individual to do unto themselves and only unto themselves. The moment you apply deconstruction to other people, you're just a destroyer. Well, and you're you're entering into a realm that there's no way for you to have a proper understanding of. Like you you cannot properly understand another person to the extent that you could deconstruct them. I would say it's it's actually quite an offensive thing to do to another human being to say to to assert that you have the right to deconstruct who they are based on the I don't know the well, the fourth hand removed impression of them that you get. It's from- an act of superiority. It's it's literally what Jacques Derrida says. Is, you know, it's it's a binary opposition. You're, I'm smarter than you, and I'm better than you, and I know what's better than you know what what's better for you. You right? You know. Mm-hmm. So how dare you deconstruct? Yeah, it's actually it's 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 quite a psychic crime, actually, in my in my view, too. The the myriad of internal emotions and experiences that another person not only has had but will never have the ability to communicate to you, I think, just should preclude that automatically from you ever considering that that should be your right. And that leads us essentially into, you know, the the consequence of death of the author is. Um, History is fiction. History as an instrument of oppression. Um, and many of you may be familiar with the ideas of, you know, like like a lot of authors investigating, you know, Benjamin Franklin and George Washington and the founding fathers and saying, well, these are, these were actually slave owners. They were not good people. Um, you know, Christopher Columbus, you know, actually murdered a lot of Native Americans. And so the ideas that we grew up on, in the 20th century of, of seeing these individuals as heroes is actually false. And so they believe, you know, since history is essentially written by authors, that all of human history as recorded um, is a fiction because anything that anybody writes is always a fiction. There's no such thing as objective truth. Therefore, there is no objective history. And all written history is just from the point of view of the author. It's subjective. And it's used typically as an instrument by which to say, well, these characters in history uh, are are good, and these characters are bad, and that's where you get this, you know, this this famous, um, you know, quote, you know, that uh, the victors write history. History is written by the victors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's a postmodern quote right there. The, mm-hmm. the assumption that only the victorious get to write, and that that the, the history and and. 
It's not necessarily true, actually, in history. Well, no, and it, and it has the same effect as what we were just talking about, you know, where you are basically erasing the majority of um, a society or a historical character's uh, humanity by, by attempting to do so, by, by generalizing human beings in such vast swaths, like the, to, to paint with, with a, a brush so broad as to be absurd... I mean, not only do you do an injustice to the actual people that lived through those periods of history and perform these things that you have now judged to be the incorrect historical action, you actually do yourself an injustice in the sense that you'll never understand history that way. You can't. By, like, by, by, doing, by, by applying modern morality to people that lived 500 years ago, you're actually you're making it impossible for yourself to understand what happened. You never will because you're talking about people who lived in a way and did things in a way and for reasons that you are just completely shutting out of your mind as having ever been not even just valid but have ever even been like like people look back and this is something that I, I kind of realized in, in studying Christianity is that you know we look back at, at history and Particularly from the from the postmodernist perspective, and I myself was guilty of this as a uh, not guilty, but like wrapped up in this as a as a conspiracy theorist. Is like you look back at history and you just see this kind of parade of, of people. It's a web of intrigue. Well, well that they're well, not even that that they're, that they're all just trying to take power from each other, and that, that and that that was the main motivating force of human history. But then you read about you know Constantine. And 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 the and the and the incident of the Milvian Bridge and what happened there that you know he had this vision of, of a Christian cross in the sun, like and and that he believed that that was going to restore the Roman Empire. Like people acted for reasons that were beyond what we can comprehend because we have so thoroughly killed God that we don't even we we can't remember how much of a factor that was. Well, it's in not even it's people. not even remember. We can't even conceive how people would believe in such quote unquote stupid ideas mm-hmm. really people would act you know in accordance to a belief in god like we we, we think they they that either that they would just say well, they're that disingenuous the yeah, yeah exactly. constantine's lying to us he's trying to control us yeah. they're using christianity to reinvent the roman empire so there's always these sort of like explanations in order to justify our current thoughts well you know what it makes me think of too is you should tell the uh Tell the, the the idea of uh, Leonard Peikoff and the and the Greek mathematicians that you know they're they're that the objectivists were so happy about the math but discounted all of the other. Books. Oh yeah, I was listening to Leonard Peikoff's. You know, um, he has a bunch of YouTube. There's YouTube videos of of a bunch of university speeches he gave on the uh, pre-Socratic philosophers, and actually he ends up going through all the way like through in, into modern times. But he's basically trying to vindicate Ayn Rand's objectivist philosophy. And he goes through all these pre-Socratic philosophers like Pythagoras and Heraclitus, etc. And anything that goes along with Ayn Rand's narrative, grand narrative should I say, um, he, he's like, these people were so smart. And even back then without all the science and math, they were able to figure this out. But if they believed in anything mystical or spiritual or religious, that was just silly and nonsense and we should just disregard it. It's like, well, can you really take an individual like Pythagoras and be like, well, he was a great mathematician and scientist, but all his mystical ideas were stupid. Well, it was his mysticism that was informing his science and math. It's the same as the death of the author thing. It's like, what, are you going to kill Pythagoras? Like, maybe we should examine where these ideas actually come from. And by, by cutting out such a huge segment of the human experience, you're just... 
you'll destroy the idea of history, which I think, as we'll see, it may not be far off from what the actual goal is. I really want to talk to, to talk about you know history as oppression and fiction and, and the scope of Freemasonry, because I think actually, um, I don't even think most Masons have realized this, but if you look at the 20th century, what you see is a c- complete deconstruction of Masonic history. So the idea that Masonry came from the mysteries deconstructed. Masonry came from um, anything religious or from you know from King Solomon's temple uh, deconstructed. The only possible explanation that's reasonable is that it came from the operative guilds. Masonry is a club. You know, masonry doesn't have the keys to uh, saving the soul. Masonry is not a religion. You know, all these phrases. I mean, some of them come maybe from the from the from the nineteenth century, but it's really the twentieth century that that sort of cements this idea that that masonry has no antiquity. You know, all the authors like uh, Mackey, uh, Albert Mackey, and Albert Pike, and um, you know, Dr. Oliver and all these other great writers who I think were just absolutely brilliant, you know, Wilhelm Hurst and, and Newton, they're all wrong. We've deconstructed it. Yeah, we figured That's it out. That's all fiction. We found all the pieces of paper yeah. and it says no earlier than 1717. Yeah. And that's why, like, deconstruction doesn't just come, like, with these people that, like, want to destroy everything. Like, it, it just, it, it has infiltrated our academia to the point that, like, everything from the past is false. And we have to, we have to, ta- we have to take a look at everything again and again, and, and we shouldn't recreate any third of sauce because there's no way we'll ever know. And it's, you know, it's all nonsense. Yeah, and that's, again, like, that we're, we're getting into a world that is unmoored from itself. Like we, we we're basically we're in the middle of a bridge and we're cutting off both sides. We can't go back and we can't go forward because going forward we're going to oppress somebody. And if we go back, then I mean that was just a parade of oppression. So we don't want to go back in that direction. So we're, then we're just stuck in the middle of this thing, hacking on both sides of it, waiting to fall to our deaths. And this is where postmodernism creates an uneasy alliance with rationality. Though it rejects the, the grand narrative of rationality and the grand narrative of science, it will use those. When it's necessary, and, and it's not a contradiction to postmodernism because it believing only in subjectivity, it can subjectively use what it wants when it wants. And that's the beauty of it. That's the ease of it. Like, whatever suits you to use, use it. And when you don't want to, discard it. There doesn't have to be a moral consistency or a rational consistency. So we could say that that's kind of nonsensical, but from their point of view, it's very consistent with the idea of, of subjectivity. So, in that, on the topic of subjectivity, there's another uh, very important idea to the postmodernist. It is definitely a later addition to the uh, to the philosophy, but this idea of intersectionality. I'm sure everybody has heard of that term at some point. In, the, in it's very popular well, in the last in, in, several years in the modern you know era. But the idea of intersectionality is is essentially this idea that. A person is not just a per like a person's not a grand narrative. It, it ties into this idea that we were talking about earlier. You're not you're not the story that you tell yourself. A person is the intersections of all of the various parts of a person. So, for example, your race, your sexuality, your uh, your gender identity, your affluence or poverty in a society, your social standing, your career. Uh, your level of education, your religion, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All of these factors of your personality intersect in you. 
you are just an intersection for all of these things. And, and they kind of view it in the sense of um, there's these are like kind of like lineage, cultural, racial, um, and religious lineages that kind of have been passed down through the ages, through your parents and grandparents and et cetera, your genetic lines to create you. And that, and that society's larger movements have kind of intersected and that you stand at the nexus of all of these many intersecting lines of history, of family, of philosophy, and, and that out of that you emerge, but that your component parts, you're, you're not a pure individual. You're, you're not, you're not an object. You're not an object. You're a subject. That's exactly yeah, right. You're, and, and your subject depends on all these different masks that you put on, yes. you know, like, um, you know, I am a Latino male Catholic Mason, uh, business owner, um, et cetera, et cetera. Well, and, and, and when intersection, you, when your intersections are identified, it becomes much easier to change them for other, for other threads, essentially to bring other things into your intersection. And that's why, and, and to some extent, I think this is, has been a good thing in, in, you know, the last 20 or so years that this idea has entered into the culture that what you are is actually a much more fluid, um, kind of state of being and less a, a thing to be moved. The person that kind of coined this term is her name is Kimberly um, um, Crenshaw, and she's she's alive today, and she kind of created this idea back in the 1980s out of postmodernism. Even though she has some criticism of postmodernism, actually, um, but she 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 divides it. She's she's a she's a black woman, and she divides it because she's like you know the problem is is that you know we can say white men have the most power on earth. You know that that would be the you know, which she started as, as a premise. Um, but the problem with black women is that they're both a woman and black. So white women would have certain advantages in the pi- power hierarchy where there's, you know, um, you know, the patriarchy rules, the white patriarchy, because, well, they might be women and quote unquote are an inferior to men, but they're white. Um, and black men... Um, they might be black, which makes them inferior between quotes, uh, but they're men. So they, may, they they have something in common with the uh, white man, right? But a, a black woman has neither in common. And therefore, they are at a more disadvantage than the white woman or the black man. And so then, you know, the problem is that you can keep, you know, this is a pyramid that goes downward forever where you can keep breaking these apart to find the most uh, oppressed people. I think that really speaks to the idea that the postmodernists have, which is that like power hierarchies to them are ingrained in every aspect of society. And, and, and the work of postmodernism then is to kind of to figure out and then naturally dismantle whatever instances of power hierarchies they can locate around them. I think this is an extremely useful structure. I mean, I know a lot of people mock this today. Um, and of course, I think it can become silly depending on how many, you know, levels of intersectionality you want to, you know, affirm. I mean, you can literally just add hundreds of these intersectionalities. But when, when we look at race, religion, um, social class, the, you know, these, these big ideas that have been circulating in history as the points of conflict, I think intersectionality does identify these power structures. And I think it's true that, you know, certain groups are more in power than other groups. And it helps us identify these power structures and to... Um, 
maybe distribute the power in, in more of a fair way. But I think this only leads to more social turmoil because, you know, then, you know, it's, it's basically it's protests, it's, it's legislation one way or the other. And um, everybody falls into two camps here. You know, there's the dichotomy of, of the left and the right. And intersectionality aggravates one side, and for the other side, it becomes sort of gospel truth, right? And I think masonry has the better approach on how to solve the problems that are identified by intersectionality, which is the creation of a universal brotherhood. And and I'm going to specifically point out co-masonry here as being um, better at this than malecraft masonry, because if you have a society that accepts both men and women— um, people that are of all you know, racial backgrounds, religions, uh, sexual orientations, etc., etc. And within this society of, you know, particularly the co-Masons, what I'm referencing here, uh, everybody has to dress exactly the same way. Everybody's referred to as a brother. There's no sisters and brothers. There's, there's no different pronouns. There's only one pronoun. There's he for everybody. Um, I think this sort of unitary view is what we're looking for to erase these problems. Yes, you can identify them using postmodernism, but if, if we're going to construct a society uh, that we don't have all these woes and dangers, I think co-masonry has kind of created a model for that. Like, let's bring everyone together, let's actually get rid of all the labels, and let's just have one label for everyone. And then in, in doing so, that's really equality, right? That's really fraternity. That's really liberty. You know, all these distinctions among men have been eliminated to the point that we are just all human beings. And beyond that, I don't know what else you can really do. Well, you took the word right out of uh, right out of my brain because as you were speaking, I was thinking like it's a constructive approach as opposed to a deconstructive approach. And it's really it's the to me, the only productive response to the to the truths uncovered by the deconstructionists, because, like you said, I'm not going to completely uh, deny the fact that deconstructionism has its uses as an intellectual tool and should be applied from time to time. But to me, in my mind, and I think in 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 the way that free, the Masonic rituals teach us to look at reality. We then have to construct. We have we are we are members of a building craft. Like for us, yeah, exactly. For us, continuous deconstruction doesn't make any sense because of the things that we've chosen to believe and the things that we've set out as our as our axiomatic truths. And so, in order to, you know, give a, a proper solution to this problem that results in in something being constructed, I think you have to take that approach where you say, okay, well. Granted, these terms may have meant different things at different times, and maybe they're not applicable to everybody in their worldly life. But when you cross the threshold of the of the lodge, you are a brother. You will be referred to as he. You will wear the same clothes as everybody else. You will be treated the same way as everybody else according to your rank, your merit, and ability, the degrees to which you have attained. And underneath all of that will lie this foundational equality on which we will build. But I think it's the building part that is that is the difference here. And if I could kind of narrow down on that idea i think as an apprentice and as an as a fellow craft deconstruction are your main tools so the apprentice is, is learning the trade of masonry and the fellow craft is beginning to implement it but it's the master mason that's the builder right but before you can be a builder you have to deconstruct yourself you have to to get rid of those superfluous knobs and excrescences you have to make the the rough ashlar into a perfect ashlar and i think deconstruction is the main tool and i think this has always been known in the mysteries. So when we look at the various traditions 
uh, throughout the world of, of mystery religions. I think this was the 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 the, the main tool, right? Uh, instead of maybe a twenty-four inch gauge, um, a mallet and a chisel, you know, maybe it was a shovel and and a pick. You know, it's like it's it, these are digging tools, right? And this is how we get to that point of vitriol. That's how we we go deep within the earth. You know, we have to dig down. We have to discover who we are, and and by by man knowing himself. There's an element of deconstruction. But once you know yourself, at least to some partial degree, then I think it logically moved to the point of constructionalism. And that's where postmodernism, they, they've never gotten to that point, unfortunately. I think, you know, they're so busy deconstructing, they're like, well, what do we put in its place? Well, Jacques Derrida, you know, uh, Roland Barthes, they don't have the answers to that. And I think that's the biggest setback with postmodernism. I think you hit on something very important there when you talk about, you know, the working tools of the first and second degree. I I completely agree with you. I think they are absolutely instruments of deconstruction. Um, You know, the the working tools of the first degree are essentially destructive tools that, that break apart things that have stood together for too long. The working tools of the second degree are essentially tools of sorting and measuring um, that allow you to determine what it is that you've broken apart. And how appropriate is it to describe the third degree as one of reconstruction? You know, for those that hold the sublime degree, I mean, there's, I would say there's nothing more appropriate than to think of the third degree as a reconstruction of, of the person. It's a restoration. A restoration, exactly. So I think the mysteries have been practicing deconstruction in a productive way, in the right way, for thousands of years. And then postmodernism has taken those ideas and then made them essentially into a religion in some ways. Because the idea of just constantly mocking everything and trying to deconstruct it has become sort of a pastime for the Western world. It's it's a religion now. Uh, everyone does it, and every it's almost every movie, every book, and every all, all media is just deconstruction now. Ad nauseum, and you know what? It's getting old. It's getting nauseating, and I th- and it, but I think the the point that you made earlier in the episode about you know that this is an adolescent philosophy is that well. Luckily, like other adolescent philosophies, they tend to fade with age and experience and, and new information. And as humanity, I, I, I continue to believe in, in the evolution of humanity and the fact that we make progress despite, you know, despite the arguments of the postmodern. Um, I think that eventually this is something that we're going to file away as useful for a time and for, for, for its own aims. But not the end of, of humanity. I don't. I no. don't think. That, I don't think we've reached the pinnacle of human understanding now. And I. And I don't think that uh, continual and regressive deconstruction is the way that we get to that pinnacle. I think we have to continue building in an upwards fashion. Otherwise, we're never going to see, you know, the real destiny of humanity made manifest. So our next section here, uh, brother Axel, is. Um, power hierarchy. So I mean, we've been talking about power and, 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 and its structure, but um, in the 1960s and 70s, there's another French philosopher. They, they tend to always be French, of course. Uh, his name is Michel Foucault, and he started to talk about these power structures. Specifically, uh, he was talking about sex. So I think he has a book called... Um, Oh, I don't remember the name now, but it's it's a book that literally tries to deconstruct um, biological sex and the way we we view sex, um, and he kind of separated power into three different structures. 
He says, first, there's sovereign power. And, and this is the obvious power structures. It's the presidency. It's, it's like, the powers it's a king. of the state. Yeah, yeah it's, 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 you, you can identify them. Almost every human being can identify the power structure. You know, it's the police. Uh, it's the army, right? And these are, this is sovereign power. It's, it's visible. It's not invisible. It's very clear who they are. Then the second um, level of the, these, these power structures is called disciplinary power. And this is the power that makes us yield to rules. So when you, for example, impose in a school standardized testing, that's disciplinary power. Because you're trying to get everybody to conform to certain ideals by imposing certain standards like, like tests, right? Um, it's also so, you know, societal expectations. Would you, would you put uh, religious power in the second category or does that kind of straddle the first and second? Is that First between and second, sovereign and disciplinary? You know, the papacy is a sovereign power. It's mm -hmm. visible. But the instruction of Catholicism to young kids would be considered disciplinary power. Or religious ethics in general are a disciplinary force rather than a necessarily sovereign force. Exactly. And essentially all morality, you know, imposed from a cultural level of expectations, um, you know, and taboos is disciplinary power. Um, the third one is biopower. Biopower is the masses. So this is peer pressure, essentially. You know, you, you go to school and everybody's wearing like sweet Nikes and you got to go get Nikes. That's biopower. So like, like just the masses can get you to do something because you're getting swayed up in their power, right? Um, now, sovereign power obviously interacts with the two levels below them. Like they create the standards that are being, you know... Um, used in schools and, you know, in societal norms. And then they're, of course, manipulating biopower to get everybody else to do what they want. Uh, and then the structure moves upward as well because you can't really have disciplinary power or sovereign power without people, without mm -hmm. the mass, without this Without the bio. biopower to support it. So, so what does, so after identifying these power hierarchies, what, what's Foucault's, I guess not answer, but prescription to do about all of this? Well, it's, it's still an element of deconstruction. He's just specifically creating the visible structure for us to see where the different power structures and hierarchies are coming from. But he, he focused on sex. So he thought saw, uh, sex to be a, a pseudoscience. He's like, there's no such thing as male and female. There's no such thing as heterosexuals or homosexuals. There's just people and people like pleasure and that's just the way it is. And as a little interesting side note, uh, you know, Foucault also, like, he was advocating uh, within the French government in the 70s to, like, get, get rid of the age of consent because he, he thought consent was another social norm. It's another disciplinary power imposed by society. So he thought minors could engage in sex uh, just as much as adults and that we should take that right away from them. So when, when Foucault is talking about power, then, is, is the... Is the solution to this to make those that are powerless powerful and those that are powerful powerless or to remove power altogether from society? The latter. Then that, I think, is, is entirely anti-Masonic in the sense that the Masonic Lodge requires of the Lodge itself not only to generate a kind of power in, in, the, in the performance of its rituals, right, that... The work of masonry requires power and energy behind it in order to do that. The lodge itself requires hierarchical power structures in order to channel the mystic power that's generated by the ritual. 
your brother actually, you, when it comes to Foucault, you're, you're not only you're right, I'm, I'm going to give a little quote here because the mystery schools essentially believe that the soul is imprisoned within the body and that our desires and, and our, the pleasure that we seek is what's holding us down in matter and not allowing the soul to ascend back up to God, right? Well, Foucault, knowing this because he was a brilliant philosopher and had researched all this, uh, he said that the opposite, that the body is the prison of the soul. So this ties into his sexology. And now that I remember, that's the name of his book. It's called Sexology. Um, is that uh, the, so, this idea of the soul uh, that religion has been promoting for 10,000 years is actually the mechanism imprisoning the body. So by, by saying, look, you can be any gender you want or have sex with whoever you want at any point in any way is liberating the body from this idea of the soul. From the tyranny of the soul. Yeah. Well, then that too, I would say, is anti-Masonic for the, re- the the same reasons that you laid out in the sense that masonry is the great work of the soul to liberate itself from the prison house of the flesh. Now, if we're going to reverse those roles, well, then we're clearly not talking about masonry or the ancient mysteries anymore. We're talking about its exact opposite. Well, and we can see what's happened today in society because I, th- I think the ideas of uh, Foucault or are, have been normalized in many ways, for good or for bad. That's for each person to determine. But essentially, um, the sex has been deconstructed in a way that it hasn't been in, in all of recorded history. No, and again, no, I'm trying to play fair with the with the postmodernists here in the sense that, like, you know, if we look, for example, at uh, I think you brought up uh, Victorian England earlier, and that would be an example of a society that had swung so far to the extreme that the body was absolutely subjugated to to the soul and and you know as as a mason and as somebody that believes that the soul is to be liberated from the body i think that that is generally the direction we should move in but at the same time i, th- I think a lot of the um, societal neuroses of the late 19th century were caused by this fixation on subjugating concealing and negating the body in such a way that people i think became uh, unnerved by living in a society like that. Well, and I think Victorian England, they were so oppressive that the result was rebellion. Teenage rebellion, almost. You know, in, in the same sense that we've described postmodernism as an adolescent philosophy that kind of, you know, if we look at, and, and we use Victorian England as an example because it's probably the most well-known, but really that was prevalent in Europe and America at the end of the 19th century. Those, those attitudes towards the body and sex in general were very kind of repressive in the same way that you almost have to be repressive with a prepubescent child in the sense, or, or a child on the edge of puberty in the sense that, you know, the, if you let this just go completely out of control, you're going you're gonna to do yourself some harm. And it, it, it's very interesting how, how humanity follows these cycles of, that we see repeated in childhood. Yeah, I mean, complete repression to, you know, total freedom, back to repression. It's, it's a pendulum just swinging back and forth. I mean, both extremes are not productive, right? Mm-hmm. Being in the center, as Masonry teaches, is the best way to go. Now, to Foucault's credit, I, I, I believe the deconstruction of sex does serve uh, occult wisdom in many ways because— um, I think, and we've discussed this on other episodes before, but a human being is composed both of male and female forces, of feminine and masculine energy. And I think the degree of the mixture of the two just depends on the individual, partly probably based on 
uh, you know, nature, partly on nurture, but in, in any regard, we're all sort of different mixtures of these two elements. You know, we're all part men and women within, right? Part man and, and, and woman. And I, I think it is, I think it's useful to deconstruct sex so for us to look at it in a more objective way and then not just assume, you know, what we have been taught for thousands of years. And I, But I think it also can go to the extreme that, you know, in identity politics, it, it, it can also become trendy. It can become fashionable. It, it can become something that brings attention to the self. And there are obviously individuals that, that, that do feel that way. And I think all that should be respected. You know, the people that believe in the binary option is fine. And the people that believe that they're, um, you know, maybe an infinite number of different, you know, um, gender co- expressions. Yeah, gender expressions. Like, that's fine too. I think we need to respect both sides of the aisle here. But the use here, again, we see it in masonry because when we enter the lodge, we are a he. At least in co-masonry, we're a he. We're masculine. Well, that's that, and, and, and the lodge is feminine. That's, a, that's an important point to make in masonry. In masonry, you and I aren't necessarily you and I. We are united to form one body. Like the lodge is composed of its members, but when we're in lodge, we are the, we're in the lodge. But it's, it's not you and I. Right, it's the officers of a lodge. It's the initiate. Like we, we take on a a, um, a, a, a role. Well, a, a mask. A, I was gonna say a certain abnegation of our personality in the sense that like who we who you and I are in our mundane you know working life is not who we are in lodge. We and and we are specifically called by the right worshipful master to become one body, and that body is masculine because it's entering a feminine body in the lodge, and and that interplay between those two. Um, Occult genders, so to speak, I think is what creates the magic of masonry. I like the occult gender. So, yeah, I mean, when we enter lodge, when we process into the lodge, it's like entering the womb, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The womb of the mother. Mm-hmm. And there is a balance between the masculine and feminine forces that are found in the creation of universal brotherhood. So I think the occult sciences have, have understood this, this deconstruction of sex for a long time. Uh, but now it's becoming more of an outward expression in society, uh, which I think the rebellion has been healthy. I just hope it doesn't swing so far that it creates truly a societal identity crisis. Yeah, I think that is kind of, I think we're kind of seeing that in the sense that in in, in all areas, you know, it's, it's trendy to say that, you know, uh, that gender is the main concern of our, of our time. But I think we see, I think we see this kind of, um, instability in in every aspect of our society whether whether it's in areas where we're starting to realize that systems that have been in place for a long time are not serving the purpose that they once did that that in fact they may be doing harm to people that was either intended or unintended and it's time to redress those or just in general that the 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 state of human life as it is on planet earth right now doesn't seem to be nobody seems to be happy with it and yet we're all doing it we're kind of in the middle ground between realizing that there's a problem and doing something about the problem. But everybody kind of understands that like life is not perfect right now. It's in fact far from perfect for pretty much everybody. But we haven't quite quite gotten to the point where we're actually going to do something about it. And well, we don't know what to do. That's about it. and that's the point. Yeah. Is like if we continue, if we start lashing out blind, then I think we get ourselves in a lot of trouble. So, brother Matthias, I think there's a there's a final idea about postmodernism, or that's within postmodernism that I wanted to, to talk about today, and that's the idea of the panopticon. 
I love the Panopticon. I know you love the Panopticon. So for those of our listeners that uh, that don't know what a Panopticon is, and that's probably many because it's a very niche <laughs> philosophical idea, but the Panopticon was a creation of Jeremy Bentham. It's uh, He's a 18th century, or sorry, 19th century philosopher, uh, came up with the concept of utilitarianism, which... If you don't know what utilitarianism is, you probably are a utilitarian uh, because it's <laughs> it's one of the most popular uh, social philosophies out there. It's basically the idea that whatever we should do, we should do it to maximize human pleasure and minimize human pain. Uh, the greatest good for as ma- the greatest amount of people. And so Jeremy Bentham came up with this. Uh, it was originally an idea for reforming Victorian prisons. Uh, but the panopticon is a is the idea of a circular prison. So it's a it's under a dome, and all of the cells are arranged on the perimeter of the circle. And at the center of the circle, there's a singular watchtower. But within the watchtower, there's there's no way to see into it from the cells. So if you're in a cell, you know that there's a watchtower that can see that can theoretically see all of the cells from the inside from the outside. But you never know if the guard in the watchtower is specifically looking at your cell or, not. or even if there is a guard or even if there is one you've been told that there is one but you don't know that there is one so you get into the situation where at the at the center of your prison is the eye of sauron and you don't know if he's looking at you or not and you don't even know if he's real but somebody at one point told you who he was and so the idea of bentham was that this would serve to reform victorian prisons by making people behave better because they would feel under constant surveillance so Foucault took this idea from the 19th century and he used it to explain the power hierarchies that are um, preventing the liberation of mankind, these, these binary oppositions. He says that, that, that biopower are the people in the cells, right? And the disciplinary power is the watchtower that you don't know if it's looking at you or not, so you have to conform to certain rules and standards. And that the whole prison was built by the sovereign power. So to kind of go back to his Mm -hmm. power structures. So these three uh, are all encapsulated within the panopticon. And that essentially this is how Western democratic slash capitalist societies have maintained control over the people. Um, We are actually – it's not that somebody's actually watching us. It's that we think people are watching us. Okay, and who do we think is watching us? Oh, it's God. God is watching us. We shouldn't sin because we might go to hell. That's an example of the of the panopticon. But but then it moves into state apparatuses where we think that maybe the, the state's watching us, and this becomes pretty real today with the surveillance state. You know you, that you know the government may be listening to your phone calls, reading your emails, you looking know, at your social media. You know that they can, but you're not sure if they are. But because you assume that it's a possibility, you, you alter your behavior. You alter your behavior because there's the idea that in private, when no one's watching, you'll act one way, but in public, you'll act, you'll act another way. So essentially, our modern civilization has used the panopticon uh, allegorically in order to create all its systems of control over us. And what we need to realize this is what Foucault says: we need to realize that there's no guard uh, men in the guard tower. And that we can just walk out of our cell and leave. That we're really not being watched. That it's all a fabrication of the state. It's a fabrication of religion. And we need to leave. Now, what's interesting, Masonically speaking, is that I think the idea of the panopticon is is definitely within Freemasonry in the symbol of the all-seeing eye, right? Mm -hmm. The all-seeing eye of providence is always watching over us 
uh, to to record our deeds, whether they are good deeds or, or ill deeds. And so we, we find the same idea of this, this all-seeing eye uh, within masonry. And I actually think it's a pivotal part of humanity, the idea that you're being watched. I know this sounds kind of weird and, and anti, um, anti-liberty, but like I think it's important that we have some concept of, what is it, responsibility to external forces? Well, if you think that's weird, let me get weirder then. So I think the Panopticon is an absolutely accurate, um, you know, I, I wouldn't agree with Foucault necessarily, but I think it's an accurate, accurate description of the reality that we find ourselves in. The only difference for me is that uh, in, in my, <laughs> my interpretation of what I've learned from Freemasonry would tell me that there are people watching but there's two faction of watchers. There's one faction of watchers that would it's rooting for us to get out of the prison, and there's another faction of watchers that wants to keep us in our cells. I, I I believe that there are there are forces of light and dark in the universe, and that one wants to keep us in the prison of the flesh, and one wants to see our soul liberated from that prison. So I think the Panopticon is absolutely real. I think we're in it right now. But I do think I think that the reality of the guardsmen is undisputed, and they they are on two different sides. No, I tend to agree with you, Brother Axel. I think um, taking the position of the mystery schools that, you know, that the earth, the, the physical universe is the prison house of the flesh, then the all-seeing eye of providence is watching, and it's what allows our soul to ascend up the, you know, Jacob's ladder towards, you know, Mount Olympus, towards the heavens, uh, to reunite with God. So our actions are being watched and recorded, and, you know, um, we need to mark well in order to to get up there, right? Well, I think the and so here's here's where I will attack the postmodernists in in a sense. Um, I think that the idea that we're not being watched on Earth is very convenient for people that don't want to be watched on Earth, because I think what some of the postmodernists don't like is that the idea that there are eternal consequences to our actions, whether or not we're witnessed. Right. But by, by, by saying that there is no watcher, you're basically it goes back to this idea of there is no morality because there's nobody to record your actions and judge them. And I think the you know, I don't, I don't want to go all the way to the opposite extreme of saying, you know, if you have nothing to hide, then why are you worried about people watching? Because I think that I don't think that's exactly the point of the panopticon. I, I don't think we're being spurred to good by, behavior by the threat of punishment. I understand why there's an uneasiness to that. But I'm also uneasy with the idea that there's no consequences for behaving immorally. Well, I mean, there's no immorality for, for postmoderns. But let me ask you a question. I want you to consider all the stupid things you've ever done in your life. Okay. okay. <laughs> uh, I'm considering mine as we speak. And you, you give me your answer after I give you mine. Just about everything that I've done that I've completely regretted was... Either I, I, I was I was not being watched by the people I respected, so I did some stupid things, and then I regretted it. It was stuff that I would never have done had my parents been watching, had I been in public. You know, I was always in secret with people that were you know probably not the best people to hang out with, right? And, and I did stupid things, and those are the things. Like if I was if I knew I was being watched more, I may not have done it. Now, my only problem with this is that again we shouldn't. We shouldn't do things just because we feel like there's a consequence. But then I'm like, well, but without consequences, can there be civilization? 
Okay, there's but, two, but answer my question. There, there's yeah. two questions there so, that I want to answer. So the first, the first part, I, I completely agree with you. I don't think any of the stupid things I've ever done have been in the presence of somebody I respected. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't have done them. But I, and and I'll I'll ask you a second question on the heels of that, in the sense that every <laughs> everything that was monumentally stupid that I ever did, I knew at the time was monumentally stupid, and that there was a small watcher inside of me that said, "Hey, you probably shouldn't be doing this," but I went ahead and did it anyway. And I think that is, I think that impulse is what Foucault is trying to kill out in us. Are you saying that there is an internal panopticon? Like, I think that there, I think there is an internal panopticon. And I, and I think that... Like, like intuition? Intuition. It's been called the holy guardian angel. It's been called, you know, your inner voice, your, your uh, Jiminy Cricket, so to speak. Your, the little, uh, the yeah. angel that sits on your shoulder and tells you not to do stupid things. Yeah. Uh, that's a very easy watchman to get rid of because it's within you and nobody else is repeating what he's saying. So you can shut him up for a little bit to, to indulge yourself. Well, then I think Freemasonry is helping us to realize that, yeah, the, the, panop- the outer panopticon is false. Foucault's partly right in his analysis. You know, we shouldn't be feeling guilty because of church and state spying on us. But we should turn inward to the inner, the inner panopticon, the, the, the voice of God that is, you know, moving us along the path of preferment. And again, you know, as we're, as we're reaching here the end, you know, I think we should give our final words on, on postmodernism. And, you know, my issue with postmodernism is that it's so good and it's so right when, when you use it on yourself but when you apply it to society in an attempt to change it into something that you want, I think it's insidious. I think it's antithetical to, to civilization. Well, civilization is a construct. Civilization is something that we build. We've known this for millennia. It's something that's preserved. I mean, this idea is preserved in the mysteries. We're, we're, we're builders of civilization. That's, that's what it is. And so I think while there are... There are ideas within postmodernism that are very valuable to understanding one's own personality and even changing one's personality. I mean, really, like if you really are burdened with a ton of, you know, a ton of dogmas from a religion that you you absolutely disagree with or you came from a family that believes some some wacky stuff that doesn't have a place in the modern world or that you don't believe it does anyway. Um, I didn't have that experience. So I guess I, I, I don't really like I don't understand that drive to to get rid of ideas that were planted in me my i never really got that from at least from my from my family so but i think like there's a lot of throwing the baby out with the bathwater in postmodernism where there's this idea that because there are some problems with our society we should just completely destroy it and start again i mean i think we have to be very very careful in doing that we've already tried to do that a hundred years ago and hundreds of millions of people died as a result the 20th century is a result of the first attempt at reshaping society in our own image, you know, thinking that we're the gods of our own natures and that we can create everything just out of whole cloth. I, I can't help but think that we can't do that. that. That is not open to us yet. I think it's possible that humanity could become like that, but I don't think we're there yet. And I think we play with very dangerous forces when we think that we are. And Masonically speaking, we're always being taught to walk the line between two worlds, right? We're, the, we're treading the mosaic pavement and we need to embrace all the things that we encounter. I don't think, I don't think it's good to reject postmodernism. 
and in its entirety. I think it's here for a reason. It, it came out of an age. It, it, it's, it's the it has something to teach us. Absolutely. Exactly. It is a lesson to learn. Is it the end? No, but I'm not sure. Any, you know, the Enlightenment wasn't the end, and the Greeks and Romans weren't the end, and the Christian Church wasn't the end. But, but and, I think but they all added something. we shall not be there. either. Yeah, yeah but I, we should always try to take the good out, the, or the useful out of each movement, every every age, and apply it to the next age. And I think postmodernism is, is run its course. I think it's we've had enough time questioning everything and deconstructing it and making everything a joke and a meme. And I think it's time to start rebuilding civilization you know i I, postmodernism is like it was like the um the equivalent of the deluge you know it's Mm -hmm. washed over our society it's all the old structures have been swept away in many ways and i think that's good i mean there was a lot of inherent racism there's a lot of inherent misogyny there are a lot of problems with civilization that postmodernism has allowed us to see Mm -hmm. and confront but it isn't going to fix the problems what's going to fix the problems is the idea of being builders, of being masons, of constructing civilization, of getting us to the next level of prosperity and understanding and universal brotherhood. And if we can bring uh, the lessons of postmodernism with us, uh, I think we're all the better. And we're, we're equipped to identify in the future very dogmatic and bad ideas because we're still, we still need to deconstruct uh, things that, that don't work. And we need to keep it as a working tool, but no more. Thank you for listening to Legends of the Craft. This podcast is purely the opinion of brothers Matthias Comcier and Axel Suvari and does not represent the official views of Universal Comasonry. Universal Comasonry is a Masonic order founded on the principles of liberty, equality, and fraternity that admits men and women without distinction of race, religion, or creed. For more information, please visit universalfreemasonry.org.